Chapter Seventeen of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seventeen. By dawn they had not found Trillium. Girls running to the showers stopped to look out of the hall windows, whispering an identical question which required no answer. Although the lawns were deserted and the cove, with its torn hyacinths, resigned to the ghost of Dominic Yu. There was a grimness about that desertion, as if the hunt had merely shifted to other environs, because there was no further need to search here. The sheriff, so the news ran, was still on the premises, probably now eating breakfast from the bountiful tray, which Hilaria had seen being carried into the visitor's parlor, gathering his strength for more determined efforts. The girls dressed quickly and hurried to the chapel for mass, then down to the dining room, assuring one another that they couldn't eat a bite of breakfast. Mother Theodore, wan from her night-long vigil, was able to settle their apprehensions, convinced them that the proper course was to continue with classes as usual. And when she left the dining room, a line began to form immediately for the cafeteria breakfast trays. Leaving the chatter in the dining room behind her, Mother Theodore walked slowly through the ancient ground floor corridor, her mind blank except for the negative thought that she did not want to meet Jarvis Thatcher. All night she had remained in her office, explaining, listening, trying desperately to remember anything that might help in the search, talking frankly of Trillium's fear, and bearing with fortitude the concealed exasperation of the sheriff. She should not have taken it upon herself to conceal so vital a thing as a young girl's terror. Yet... On the other hand, she had been uncertain that it was terror. For the past year, almost, Trillium had been slipping around the fact that she might have a vocation, and in the beginning Mother had believed her to be worried, as so many girls were, overtaking the step that would cut her off forever from the world. It was a task requiring infinite tact and understanding to separate those with true vocations from the merely convent-struck, and the truest help lay in leaving a girl alone at such a time. So she had left Trillium alone, mistaking entirely the motive force behind her unrest, until the day she had tried to unveil the girl's secret. I should have insisted that she talk with Father Michael, Mother reflected sadly, but now it was too late. Mother had come to the dark arch of the tunnel leading to the chapel, and she snapped on the lights. The passage offered an exit to the outdoors without the possibility of meeting Jarvis. The little bolted door in the chamber under the chapel would open into privacy for her. Taking her time, Mother strolled along. History lived in this old place. The stones upon which she walked had been laid by sisters' hands, an underground burrow in which the community had hidden from cannibal Indians and from the forces of the Spanish butcher with the Irish name. It was relaxing to dwell upon tribulations so old that time had solved them, and so when Mother saw the bundle pushed back upon the ledge, she did not think much about it. The electric bulbs were dim and far apart, and the ledge burrowed in twilight between two fixtures. Mother Theodore was ten paces or more away when she paused, the thing she had seen tugging at her conscience. She looked back. From this distance nothing was discernible. The old stones bulged and receded in heavy shadow. But something had been there, wedged into a break. Rindy, she exclaimed aloud, if that girl has been hiding dust cloths here. 
Her ire and her curiosity both aroused, Mother Theodore bore back, her keen glance stripping the old walls of their secrets. She had not far to go. In the shadows between the lights there was a recess in the solid stone, and out of it a brown lump of cloth protruded, exactly the color of a sister's habit. Mother halted so abruptly that one foot remained forward for another step. The old place was deathly still, now that her skirts had ceased their rustling, and in that incredible silence Mother stood, staring at the brown protrusion, remembering, like a burst of a Fourth of July rocket, something Jarvis Thatcher had said. He can come and go at will, in some unexplainable manner, he is immune to detection. But why, how, is he the invisible man? And now Mother Theodore knew. He was the invisible man, invisible because he wore the garb of a sister, and could be seen, and yet not seen, because no one would remark him. He could go anywhere if he chose his moment carefully, at twilight, for instance. Mother recoiled in horror. She was jumping to a conclusion, of course, simply because Rindy had stuck a dust cloth out of sight. But she was shaking when she went slowly forward, trembling as she put up her hand to touch the bundle. It was large, from the solid feel of it, large enough to be an entire habit, tightly rolled. And there would be a name on it, inside the back of the neck. That small fact seemed more terrifying than any other. Without having more than touched the cloth, she backed away. At the tunnel entrance, she turned off the light. Anyone who met her as she passed up the stairs saw nothing unusual in her deportment. It was only when the door of the visitor's parlor closed behind her that she gave in to her dread, and the sheriff had to put her into a chair and bring a glass of water before she could speak. When she told him, Jarvis Thatcher sat for a long time, staring at the dust motes dancing in the sunshine before the window. Mother had thought he would rush down to the tunnel and drag the bundle out to see for himself. But there he sat, evidently as reluctant as she to know more about this strange discovery. "'What do you do with your worn-out habits, Mother?' he asked finally. "'We burn them. They're blessed, you see.' How many does each sister have? Two, an old one and a good one, which she saves her best. I take it no one has reported a habit missing? No one, Jarvis. But there would be a name on this garment. Yes. He moved as if he were about to rise, but instead he drooped forward like an old man, his elbows on his knees. It was Mother Theodore who turned her eyes now to the dust motes. Jarvis spoke painfully. You see how it was, Emmy. Somehow or other, he got hold of the habit. It doesn't matter how, and he saw that it would furnish him with the anonymity he had to have. He's clever, loves the dramatic, so the masquerade had a double appeal. In some way, too, he found out that Trillium was going to try to escape from the convent that night of the play, and so he had to move quickly. He already had the habit— he must have put it on somewhere back of the cloister, and was just making his way around to where he expected to meet Trillium, when she popped out before him. But it wasn't Trillium, it was Helen, Mother said dully. I know, but Trillium's twin in the moonlight. He must have been surprised to see her there, but our man's an opportunist, and he acted. The sheriff stood up to leave. 
I don't want to touch that habit. I'll go down and take a look at it, but I'm going to leave it where it is. Can you find out who it belongs to? Mother nodded. Jarvis turned, his hand on the doorknob. I'd rather have had it any other way, Emmy. I guess you know that. Mother kept her eyes on the sunshine. It was not nice to think that a sister had missed a habit and not told. Whoever had kept the secret would have to face discovery now and explain why she had remained silent. Definitely, it was not nice. Spurred by the small resentment and a very large curiosity, Mother left the parlor and went to begin a quiet questioning of all the sisters. Glory McElroy came out of the east entrance and cut across the lawn toward the farmyard and her own house. Absolutely, she was telling herself. She wouldn't take a skinned monkey and stay in that convent another night. Even with a door locked, she hadn't slept a wink. Miss Mary Elizabeth had tossed until midnight, when Glory finally decided to give her a sleeping pill, and now she lay like the dead, with Sister Laurent on guard. On guard, but it hadn't done much good to guard Miss Trillium, Glory reflected bitterly. She would stay for the day, but when night came she would head for home, sheriff or no sheriff. Over the swamp the sky hung low, like a fleecy northern blanket. It would be raining by noon, or sooner. In the portress's little office the telephone was ringing, a faint whir cut abruptly when Sister Osmond answered. Within seconds the sister popped out of her office and hurried along to the visitor's parlor, to knock discreetly. There being no answer, she opened the door and found the parlor empty. Oh, dear, she sighed. It was troubling to receive a call such as she had just had, and not be able to tell the sheriff immediately. She went back to her office and pulled her chair into the doorway, where she could see the sheriff the instant he appeared. Or Mother Theodore. Mother would do as well. But Mother Theodore was extremely busy that morning. Classes were going on as usual in the college, as usual so far as routine was concerned. When Mother tapped at each classroom door and drew the sister out into the hall, there was a stunned silence within instead of the expected buzz of whispering. Her question, always the same, brought always the same answer. The sister had not lost a habit. But as her tour progressed, Mother gathered several bits of information. Three of the sisters had received new habits this year, Sister Raymond, Atene, and Gaspard. Yet Sister Atene, the other two remarked, had been seen only once wearing hers, and that was the Sunday before mustard seed. Often, in the past week, the other sisters had come upon her, searching through dresser drawers and closets, and she had been worried and jumpy, and had given no explanation when they asked what she had lost. Mother Theodore was far more unhappy than if the culprit had been either of the other sisters. Coming to Sister Atene's door, she knocked. No answer. She opened the door. The room was empty, but sniffling sounds came from the closet. Sister Atene? The sounds continued. Mother quietly crossed the room and opened the closet door. Inside, flanked by an old-fashioned, long-sleeved nightgown and a heavy black cape, both on hangers, cowered Sister Atene. Her eyes were tightly shut and she was crying. Mother took her gently by the arm and pulled her out. Sister, you are not afraid of me. I know and I understand everything. You have lost your good new habit, haven't you? The old sister shuddered through a long sob. 
Yes, mother. And when Sister Omfroy mentioned to me that you were asking about habits, I nearly died of shame. Just tell me what happened, how you lost it, and I'll not ask you anything else. In the drying yard, I put it there because I'd sponged it out and it had to dry. I wanted to look neat for the play, and they said I should sponge it, so I did. Who are they, sister? I don't remember. It must have been glory. And so you couldn't wear it to the play? Mother said, opening a small box on the dresser to bring out a clean handkerchief for Sister Atene. If Jarvis was right in his reconstruction of that ghastly scene by the cove, then the habit must have disappeared shortly before the performance began. Oh, I didn't mind, Mother. I still had my old one, Sister Atene replied, smiling, her grief transient as a child's. And it's quite wearable. I don't need another. I am very happy with this one. And you're sure it was on the night of the play you lost the habit? I couldn't forget that, Mother. Of course she couldn't. No one could forget the initiation of such misery as Sister Atene had been enduring. You'll have a new habit, Sister, Mother Theodore assured her. I do not blame you in the least for what happened. The thief was very clever. Sister Atene cried again, but now it was with joy and mother left her. It had not occurred to sister to ask whether it was because the habit had been found that mother knew. She wiped her eyes, blew her nose, and felt her way out through the cloister for an hour with Taffy. By noon, the telephone had rung again, and sent Sister Osmond on another fruitless hunt for the sheriff. By noon, also, Glory had encountered Rendy in the upper hall, and dispatched her with a message to the sheriff. But Jarvis Thatcher had gone into Marysville on another trail, and when he came back in the later afternoon, he was busy. Confronting Mother Theodore, he was no longer the old school chum who called her Emmy, with an affectionate air of teasing. He stood with her desk between them, scowling down at the woman with the coif-shadowed face, and there was about him the brisk determination which had inspired the voters to elect him. "'I'm running into too many obstacles, Mother. I've put through a call to Alvard.' the uncle, in New Orleans, again, but there's only a couple of maids at home. First it was Alvard I couldn't get, out of town on business. Now the missus has gone to her folks in Tennessee and won't be back till after Christmas, and those stubborn maids insist they don't have her address. All they're sure of is Nashville. Poppycock. Colored maids are cautious, Sheriff, Mother reminded him. Not that cautious. They're afraid of something just like everybody else in this case. And I don't blame them. I'm afraid myself. Where is Glory McElroy? She has gone home for an hour or so. Sister Laurent is relieving her. The telephone rang. As Mother listened to Sister Osmond's voice, she closed her eyes. Very well, Sister. The sheriff is here now. I'll tell him. She laid the telephone back in the cradle. Sister Osmond is receiving mysterious calls, a man asking to speak with Trillium. Where's the call from? Through the local exchange. It's not long distance. The sheriff grunted. What about the habit, mother? I'm afraid it belonged to Sister Atene. She's not dependable. Don't try to explain her to me, Emmy. I understand, Jarvis said, his brusque manner gone. Trouble doesn't become either her or you, but about the habit. I left it where it is. Rats can always tell when something belonging to them has been moved, and
and they're likely to be frightened away. And I don't want our rat scared off. I want to catch him. Of course, Jarvis, Mother murmured, but her impulse was to cry out that St. Aurelian's was never intended to be a rat trap. He has no moral character, the sheriff continued. He can't see anything wrong about killing to protect himself. And I think that's what he has done. The only bad feature, as far as he can see, is that he murdered the wrong one, and it's put him to no end of trouble to try to catch up with the right one. So it's inevitable that he try again, said Mother. Unless he's already been successful. Mother Theodore sat perfectly still, her eyes upon the sheriff's hands clasped on the back of the chair. Her head ached unbearably. Still, pain was a comfort in a way. If the life was to ebb out of her beloved convent, it was only fitting that she should feel the pain of its passing. The sheriff said something about keeping her chin up and left, but Mother did not move. Sister Osmond, at her switchboard, was being very definite about the mysterious phone calls. Oh, yes, the same man both times. I'm positive, Sheriff. He asked for Trillium Pierce, and when I say she is indisposed, he cuts off the connection. Give me an outside line for a minute, Sister, and I'll set a snare for the elusive gentleman. The telephone exchange in Marysville had a switchboard very nearly as old as the invention of the instrument. Above the usual lineup of plug connections, there was a range of tiny trapdoors. When a caller took down his receiver, the little lid fell open, revealing the number, while at the same time a buzzer gave a signal. It would be simple for the operator to keep a record of the calls for St. Aurelian's. Now, sister, if this stranger calls again, you just ring Hattie back, and she'll tell you where he called from, the sheriff said. And leaving Sister Osmond in a flush of efficiency, he set off down the hall, as if bound on urgent business. At the east door he came to a stop, and stood wondering where to turn next, pulling at his lower lip and catching glimpses of the parking lot through the rain swelling against the window. He had missed the onslaught of the rain, but already every concave surface was rimming. High's pickup truck slopped into sight and halted while someone got out on the far side. Bad day for a ride in that old jalopy, the sheriff mused. No glass in the doors. With the storm slanting out of the east, whoever rode with high would certainly be soaked to the skin. The truck shuddered on, and a girl darted toward the entrance. The sheriff swung the door open for her, and let the wind drive it shut once she was inside. For the girl who had sped in out of the rain was in the nature of a vision. During the past hours he had imagined her in so many states, including the sodden, that this sight of her seemed a fanciful continuation. She was dressed as they had described her. Her eyes were circled from lack of sleep. The small hand grasping the rail was dirty, as one might expect, after a sojourn in the swamp. The sheriff rubbed his forehead, shocked by the evidence of his fatigue. But when he looked again, the girl was still there. Not only was she still there, but she came close and swayed against him, and he steadied her with his arm. A girl coming down the stairs saw her and screamed. None of that, the sheriff said sharply. Trillium is perfectly well and safe, as you can see. You may tell the others, but no foolishness. Understand? The girl stammered and fled. With his arm about her gently, as if she were Kathy, Jarvis led Trillium to Mother Theodore's office. 
Mother received them as if she had been expecting such an event all day. She removed Trillium's wet coat, helped Jarvis put her into the armchair, and telephoned Sister Osmond to order hot coffee. Sister has a message for you, Mr. Thatcher, she said as she cradled the phone. The sheriff sat down. He had no intention of leaving Mother Theodore to extract the first information from Trillium. The girl lay back, her eyes closed, her hands limp, the right palm and nails pathetically black. Until the coffee came, Jarvis knew it would be no use to try to question her. Mother would only seize upon the opportunity to banish him. But the girl will talk this time, he decided grimly, and occupied himself with framing questions until the coffee was handed in. I want you to drink this, dear, Mother said. Trillium obeyed, and almost at once the color began to rise in her cheeks. Now you're beginning to come alive, Trillium, the sheriff said. It was an unfortunate idiom. He went on rapidly. We're entitled to an explanation of where you've been. You have caused us terrible anxiety. My men have been searching for you ever since last night. We dragged the bayou. We hunted everywhere we could think of. Mother Theodore was too worried to rest at all. The least you can do is explain where you went and why. Trillium's lips quivered. Her dark eyes were pleading. I'm sorry, Sheriff. Really, I am. But I just... went away. I had to. Why did you have to? Because... I... The girl began to tremble so that speech was impossible, and Mother Theodore drew a chair close and took her hands. Dear, the sheriff has to find the solution to this quickly. There's very little time. Don't be afraid. Tell us where you went, what you did. Trillium's head moved heavily against the back of her chair. Her dirty little hands lay in Mother's, so pathetic that Jarvis could not bear to look at them. Swamp mud, evidently. Trillium, Mother said, tell us what this is on your hands. Silver polish. The strange little answer hung between the sheriff and Mother Theodore, bringing their attention together in bewilderment. It's what? The sheriff brought out at last. Suddenly Trillium opened her eyes and sat up, clinging to Mother. I didn't run away just to cause trouble, Mother. I had to go. Isn't it enough that I'm back now? I won't run away again, I promise. No, Trillium, it isn't enough the sheriff said, with all the sternness he could command. There's too much behind it. You'll have to tell me now. But I can't. I can't. The girl sobbed. You can't? When two people have died because of you? Two? Oh, no, not... She bit back a name, in such terror that only the sheriff's determination to help her drove him on. Not who, Trillium. Speak out. Who do you think might be the next victim? The girl was crying uncontrollably, and Mother said in a sick voice, Jarvis, don't. Trillium heard them from a great distance, through darkness breaking in waves around her. She was not afraid any more. The darkness was thick and beautiful. She slipped down and down until it closed gently around her. When she awoke, she was in her own room, lying on her own bed. Mary Elizabeth's bed was gone and she was alone with Sister Laurent hovering over her. Lie still, dear, don't talk. Trillium's head moved against the pillow. 
Through her uneasy dreams, some terrible question had drummed at her. Sister! Don't get so excited, child. What is it? Sister, who else has been... been killed? Why, that poor Mr. Burns. I should think it was a hunting accident. He was shot. The girl's breath came in a long sigh. So it was not her mother. Jim had not slipped away from the campus and found her, defenseless, in whatever place she was hiding. Now go to sleep. I'll be right here, the sister whispered. Trillium smiled. It was easy to feel safe here with the rain walling the convent off into a world of its own. The grounds would soon be flooded, the guest house isolated so that even the purpose of a murderer could be thwarted. Not in days had Trillium felt so contentedly relaxed. Tomorrow's fear, of course, would rise with the new dawn, but tomorrow was too far away to be an immediate worry. How wonderful to be safe enough to sleep! Jarvis Thatcher had deposited the unconscious Trillium upon her bed and hastened to other business. "'So she's found!' Sister Osmond exclaimed when he came into her office. "'Thank the good Lord!' She plugged in an outside line and waited while the sheriff called his own office in the search for Trillium. Then she produced a paper upon which was written a telephone number, a name, and an address. "'What time did he call, Sister?' "'Twelve-fifteen. I noticed it exactly, Sheriff.' And what did he ask? He said, May I speak to Trillium Pierce? And I said, We couldn't call the girls to the telephone, but if he would leave his number, I'd give her the message. But he didn't seem to want to leave his number. The operator in Marysville had it for me, and I looked it up in the directory, and there it was. Abe Cohen, Furrier. Give me that outside line again, sister. His instructions were short. A deputy... Pete Jenkins, was to proceed at once to Mr. Cohen's establishment and ask some pertinent questions. "'He'll call back on that, sister,' said the sheriff. "'When he does, tell him to wait at the office until I get in touch with him.' He tramped away, and Sister Osmond settled into her chair with a sense of great accomplishment. End of Chapter 17